Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gathering of your, your people. Uh, we thank you for the assembly of the temple that is going to happen here uh, shortly, uh, about 1030. Uh, we praise you for that. But we thank you also for this time to come and to meditate and to think together about uh, the Trinity. And um, Father, we, we just, uh, above all, we want to think about you rightly. We want to love you and conceive of you in our minds the way that we ought. And we want to praise you and we want to worship you according to, your, to the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we just pray this morning as we discuss these things that you would bless us. Lord, we pray for the opportunities we've had. Pray for this guy at the gas station uh, that Steve was able to talk to. Pray that you grant um, this man interest and repentance. That the truth would grab a hold of his heart. Pray even for the fellow that I... Um, talked to years ago now. Um, Lord, just pray that you would be working in his heart and life even as we speak. Um, but Lord, we pray for more opportunities this week. We pray for um, just a culture of evangelism in our church, uh, that we would be faithful um, in the spheres of life where you put us. Thank you for this time, and pray you bless this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so uh, what we've been doing with the Trinity is um, going uh, over kind of the, the different roles and relationships and focusing um, or trying to focus on what, what are those relationships inherently, even in eternity. In some of our data, we're looking at, well, what's going on um, as the, the Trinity uh, works its plan out in redemptive history, and we can take some of that data back and, um, because it gives us information about those internal relationships. So we've looked at the Father and the Son. Uh, the Father loves the Son eternally. The Son eternally loves the Father. The Son takes his direction from the Father. Um, and we've seen that. We've talked a couple weeks about the Spirit, uh, which is in some sense even more challenging. But uh, basically what we landed on is that the Spirit enables love and fellowship between the Father and the Son. Uh, the Father eternally begets the Son by the Spirit. At least it would seem that way from the data we looked at in the, the New Testament. But it's that idea that the Spirit is the one who's enabling, empowering um, that fellowship, that communication uh, between the Father and the Son. Now, um, what I'm going to do right now is actually kind of, in a sense, uh, might be a little unexpected, but um, just, just look at the Father, right? So we've kind of looked at the Father and the Son. We've looked at the Father, Son, and Spirit. And now let's just back up one stage to the Father. Um, how does the Father... And, uh, and, and we've discussed that as we've gone through these other, um, uh, you know, looking at the relationships already, but just kind of zo zooming in on the Father... And what, what is he doing? What is his role uh, eternally in the Trinity? And so we could, we, let, let me actually just pause. What would you say, based on what we've already discussed, um, what is the Father's role in the Trinity? Primary administrator. Primary administrator, you could put it that way, yeah. Um, what else? The initiator, okay, Mike? I think the Father is Yeah. Well, and he is, right? So he's the fount of, uh, he's the, fount of the divine nature. Uh, not, that does not mean he's any more God than the Son is God or the Spirit is God. But we do see through eternal begottenness and eternal procession that that divine nature is passed on uh, eternally, never had any beginning, um, to the Son and to the Spirit. So we, uh, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are all equally God. And yet, uh, that, that uh, divinity, that deity, that nature is passed on. Because you see places like Hebrews 1, 3, what, where the Son is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, right? Uh, so good. 
Um, so, yeah, and you've, you've already captured it. Really, if we wanted to summarize the Father's role in the, the Trinity, it, the Father is the initiator of all divine activity. Father is the initiator of all divine activity. That's a sentence I stole from a, uh, a thesis or a dissertation I was reading about this. Um, but that's, that's if you want to boil it down. The Father is the initiator of all divine activity. And we've already seen that in his relationship with the Son and the Spirit as we've examined each one of those. Let's go to a few passages um, to just see this. Okay. Now, I'll remind you that most of the time uh, in the New Testament, when you see the word God, it is normally, not always, normally it is a reference to the Father, okay? So keep that in mind as we look at these passages. So let's go to Romans 11. Let's go to Romans 11. Uh, Romans 11, and we're going to read 33 through 36. And Romans 11 is kind of a key turning point in the book of Romans because uh, Paul's laid out his gospel defense. He's even shown how does that relate to Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11. And so Paul kind of coming to... Um, Doctrinally, he's coming to a, a fevered pitch before he turns to more, okay, what do you do with this stuff, starting in chapter 12. Uh, so what we we're about to read is kind of the, the culmination of the first part of Romans. So uh, someone go ahead and read Romans 11, 33 through 36. Okay, so first, who is this text talking about? God, and, and more specifically, we would say this based on the fact that and it, um, majority of uses in the New Testament, we're not talking about the triune God as a whole, we're talking about the Father, okay? Um, and so what, is the fa- what do you see about the Father here? Yeah, what's unsearchable? Judgments, inscrutable his ways. Okay, uh, what else? Wisdom and knowledge. Um, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor. So there's a lot of this sense of planning, right, that's coming on. And then what do you see in verse 36? Yeah, for from him, so he's the source of all things. What else? Yeah, for him, so everything's coming back around to him. So if you think about the source of everything is coming from the Father, but then it boomerangs around uh, to come back to his honor and glory, and then through him, right? Um, And this isn't like neglecting the other members of the Trinity. They work together in harmony uh, and separably in their works. Uh, But you, um, you see that idea the Father is the source, uh, it's all happening through his superintendence, and it's all coming back around to him in his glory and honor. To him, the Father, in this case, be glory forever. Amen. Right? So you see in all of this section, 
the Father planning, the Father's wisdom, because that's really what Paul's laid out. He's talked about, here's, here's God's plan in history, here's how he's worked it out, how he is working it out through the Son, the son and the Spirit, um, but here he's, he's focusing on the Father, and he's planned all of this, it's ultimately coming back around to his glory and honor. Anything else you see in that, that, that passage there? Okay, let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians 1. Should be a familiar passage. Um, let's, uh, we'll do Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. There's a lot there. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we'll pick, we'll pick pieces out. Someone go ahead and read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Okay, great. Thank you. Wonderful passage. Um, we've got the, the, all the Trinity in here. Um, but what do you, who's the one doing all the action? The Father, right? What is the Father doing? Just name some of the things that he's doing. He's doing a lot, but... Yep. So he's the initiator of the predestining of adoption uh, and uh, an election for the people, um, the people of God. Yeah, what else? Yeah, he's going to present us holy and blameless. Okay, what else? Yeah, chose us. And notice, chose us in him. So it's not, the Father's the initiator, but here you see how the work, the work of the Trinity is inseparable, right? Um, so it's not just the Father chose us, he chose us in Christ. Uh, because the Christ is the one who's going to uh, redeem us, um, buy us back, um, and so that we can have adoption as sons, right? So you see that aspect. What else? Right, that's how it starts, is 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's where we're going, right? And even um, the, uh, it says later in chapter 2 that um, he, uh, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places that essentially we might, um, well, I'll just read it. Just go there. Um, Ephesians 2, um, I'll just start in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we talk about the blessings in the heavenly places. The blessing is ultimately God himself. The one who is inexhaustible in his character and who he is. He's going to be forever unpacking that for all eternity. Um, and so that's part of the blessing, uh, the key part of the blessing, uh, the ultimate part of the blessing of uh, the spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ, in the Son. Okay? Uh, what else? <coughs> Yeah, and, and it's the idea, even in those verses there, we lavished upon us, you know, wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, the Father's will, according to his purpose, the Father's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, so there's a plan, to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, right? So, again, you see the Father's plan, the Father's initiative, the Father heading up all things under Christ, uh, so Christ is by no means absent. It, he's, the Trinity is working in separately, and yet what you see here is the Father's initiating all of this, um, all, the, all of this redemptive, all of redemptive history, really. Um, what, where do you see the Spirit? Yeah, um, exactly, and and so. Um, let's back up even just a little bit um, in verse 11 in him in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him the father who works all things according to the counsel of his will so there we got the father's will again so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory in him Christ you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory um so the spirit again you see this trinity working an inseparable work together right so the father is initiating the son is redeeming the spirit is sealing in this case uh they work together uh did you notice there's a refrain in this um 
this whole section to the praise of his glory, right? Why does the Father do this? Why does the Father do anything that he does? Ultimately, for the praise of his glory, which is good news for us, too, because when the Father glorifies himself, our greatest good is to see the Father's glory, so we want the Father to glorify himself so that we can enjoy his glory. But that's, the, that's the, what you see here, the same thing we saw in Romans eleven thirty six. 36. It's ultimately coming back around to the Father's glory. Okay? Uh, what questions do you have about the Trinity uh, from this passage? Or anything else that stuck out? Okay. Now, uh, kind of connecting with that idea of the Father predestining and choosing... Go to John. Go to John 17. Because John, we've seen the Gospel of John, um, and his letters too, but uh, the Gospel of John, we get key snapshots of stuff that has existed for all eternity or plans that have existed for all eternity. Um, someone read John 17, 1 through 5. Okay, what do you see here, particularly about the Father? Obviously, the Son is there. The Son is speaking to the Father. But what do you see about the, what the Father's doing or has done? Yep, the Father sent the Son. Uh, good. What else? Yes, there's authority given from the Father to the Son. So we've talked about that. To do what? To give eternal life to who? Yeah, so it's authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, the Father, have given to the Son. So this connects with what we just saw in Ephesians. The idea is the Father has initiated by predestining, by foreordaining, um, who's going to be uh, the people of the Son, right? And what you see here, and you see it elsewhere in John quite often, actually, is the idea that the Father is giving a people to the Son, right? He is giving a people to the Son. It is those people whom the Son dies for. Um, go back to John 10. We can see this um, in another way. Like I said, it's mentioned several times. Um, <laughs> Should have marked it out ahead of time. This is what happens. I know it's here. Oh, there we go. It's later on. There we go. Okay. 
Um, let's start in 1025. So the Jews are talking to him, and they're like, hey, tell us if you're the Christ. Uh, 1025, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, for no, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what do you see here? You see a same language. The Father is giving a people to the Son. His sheep is how it's referred to here, the flock. Um, and they are protected. They are protected by both the Father and the Son. But you see here, in relation to what we're talking about, the Father is the initiator in the giving of a people to the Son. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever conceived of salvation this way, sometimes we think, well, um, Jesus loves his people, and, you know, the Father's kind of grumpy and angry uh, with his people, and yes, the Father is wrathful against sin, but really there's, there's no necessary love for the Father for his people, and so Jesus kind of has to, you know, buy the Father off so that he's happy with us, but that's not true, because what we see what we see in John and 1 John as well is the one who initiated the redemption of his peop- uh, the son's people is the father. And Jesus will say, the father himself loves you. Uh, even in John 17, I think that's in John 17 where he says that. So the father loves us. He's, in, he's initiated this whole plan of um, salvation. And the son loves us and the spirit loves us. The spirit uh, as we were talking about last, last week, sweeps us up into that communion with the Father and the Son, uh, but it's initiated by the Father. Yes. Yes. Right. Because the Son's actually kind of grumpy too. Grumpy yeah. Father, yeah. Right. To the grumpy Father, the Son, or yeah, or yeah. He's so busy. Yeah. yeah, which is just so sad because it, it's, you know, what does the scripture say, right? What is the father loves? He's initiating. He gives a people to the son. The son redeems that people. The spirit seals that people, um, you know, to what? To the end of being able to share in the inner Trinitarian fellowship uh, in, the, the, in the end, which is the gospel, right? God is the gospel to be able to enjoy God for all eternity uh, is the end of the gospel. Right. Yes. Yep, exactly. He loved the world in, a, um, in the, you know, the fallen world system. Um, he doesn't love every single individual exactly the same. He loves a particular people with a unique love, uh, but he does show that love um, through the Son so that any who would come um, could come to the sun and be redeemed. So, okay. Anything else, kind of about that idea of the father giving a people to the to the son? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's certainly there, but it's not pushed right up front. 
Yeah, you do see in uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, like, uh, I can't remember if it's seven or eight, where God says, um, I've loved you as a, as a people. He's talking to Israel. I've loved you as a people. But there it's the same concept, right? I'm loving you as a people. I brought you to myself as a people. He's loving individuals in a covenantal way like, like King David in a very specific covenantal way. And then even you got Malachi, right? Malachi, um, uh, you know, the father says, I loved you. And Israel's like, well, how have you loved us? Um, and, but he's like, I chose you. I didn't choose Edom. Um, and that's sort of an idea, right? So um, the electing love of God, the particular love of God, um, you do see through the Old Testament. But yeah, it, it really, you know, we get a lot more detail once we get to the new, for sure. So, okay. Um, and that's, let me just pause there. That, that reminds us the idea. I think one of the things we're going to do next is when we kind of get out of the, Trinity, is talk about the idea of what, is, what does it mean for God to love? One of the things we're already seeing is one of the things it means God's to love, God's love is exclusive. It's not indiscriminate. Yes, he does love all people in a, in a certain sense, just like um, do I love women in a general sense? Yes, but not in the same way that I love my wife, right? Biblical love is exclusive to a covenantal relationship, right? Uh, which is part of what we're seeing here in John. Okay, now, speaking of um, just kind of the culmination of things, we know Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to reign. He's going to reign over all the world um, from a throne in Jerusalem. But even there, you see a um, primacy to the Father. Again, not in nature or essence. They are all equally god uh, but you see in role uh, still a primacy of the Father. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection because uh, at least the Corinthians are tempted to abandon um, that or because of uh, this notion of, well, um, you know, in Greek thought, you know, your, your body is a prison for your soul. So you really want to get rid of the body so that you're good to go. And uh, what uh, Paul says is, no, there is a resurrection. You can't deny the resurrection. If you deny the resurrection, our faith is in vain. But in the midst of all of this, he talks about um, what's coming in the end, because what's coming in the end is intimately tied to a personal resurrection. Um... Let's go ahead and start in verse 20, uh, and let's read through 28. Will someone read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28? Someone who hasn't read yet.
accepted. Okay, there's a lot going on there, right? Okay, let's lay it out. So Christ comes back. He defeats every enemy, including death, right, uh, at the resurrection. So this is how it ties in with the resurrection. But what happens after that? When everything is subjected under the Son's feet, what happens? He hands it to the Father, right? So such that what? How does it end? Why, why is he handing it back to the Father? Yeah, that God may be all in all, right? So we see that same pattern of, um, you even saw it in John 17, right? Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And you see that pattern here as well. Like the son's going to reign uh, and he's going to reign for eternity, but he's doing it under his father. Uh, how does the Lord's Prayer start? My fa- uh, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then what? Your kingdom. The Father's kingdom come. The Father's will be done um, on earth as it is in heaven, right? So even in how we're taught to pray, uh, primarily our prayers are directed to the Father. Uh, not that we, we're going to talk about that, how do we pray in, in right thinking with uh, what we've learned about the Trinity. But it's that same pattern of the, the Son is even, when all things are subjected to him, he's going to hand things over to the Father, right? That the Father might be all in all, okay? Uh, So, again, you see the Father's initiator. You see the Father as kind of an ultimate receiver of of glory, right? Um, Not that, um, I mean, the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified, but the Father is glorified when the Son is glorified, and when the Son is glorified, he delights to get back that glory to the Father, right? So there's no, like, there's like, oh, bummer, I didn't get as much glory, right? Um, There's none of that in, um, in the Trinity, okay? Uh, what questions do you have or thoughts as we think about the Father as the initiator and even the ultimate kind of receiver of, of glory? How does this shift your thinking? Or does it? It's too much to answer your question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, plenty of thought, things to think about. Yeah, uh, Andrew. Yeah. Um, so your question is, then him, the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection. So is the son currently not subjected to the father? Yeah, that's your question. I would say that what's going on here uh, is a, a, a display, right, uh, in, in the working out of redemptive history of something that has happened for all eternity, but it's going to be displayed. You kind of see that in Philippians 2 as well, where it says that the fa- because of what Christ has done in his death on behalf of his people, uh, therefore he has highly exalted him. The fa- so the Father has highly exalted him, the Son, and bestowed on the Son the name that is above every name, such that at the name of... Uh, uh, well, let's just go there. So that's the name of Jesus... Um, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, Yahweh, um, to the glory of God the Father, right? So uh, did, 
does it mean that the son never had the name Yahweh, that he never shared in that before? No, because then we would be denying the son's eternal deity. But it, what is happening in Philippians 2, and it seems like what's probably happening here in 1 Corinthians 15, is the display before everyone, right, of the son's, in 1 Corinthians 15, the son's reign over all. And then the son publicly is going to say, my job is done, sort of. Although he's still going to be reigning, uh, but here I'm subjected to the Father. Um, does that help? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else? As we're thinking about the Father as divine initiator, uh, the one as... Um, it's hard to use language because what happens is, in our minds, when we hear words like supreme or subjection or submission... We automatically think, oh, then this person has to be inferior to this person. But that is not the case, right? Um, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal in essence, equal in nature, um, equal in godness. Um, but what we are talking about is a distinction in role, right? We use that illustration of the military, right? It, as far um, is a general uh, a more of a human being than a lieutenant? No. <laughs> But there is a role that the general has that the, the, that the lieutenant does not. And there's a sort of supremacy, but not one that gets to the heart of essence or nature as a human being. Uh, that's an analogy that can help as we're talking about the roles in the Trinity. Okay? Um, any follow-up questions on the role of the Father? We've seen a lot of that already in the previous weeks. We just highlighted a few passages uh, and there's more we could go to, but just highlighted a few passages here. So, um, one, um, what we want to ask next is kind of to, we've looked at the different roles of the persons in the Trinity. So we've really emphasized the threeness, like a lot, right? We really emphasize the distinction side of things. Now, remember how we started? We said you can get into trouble if you too much emphasize the threeness, because then you'll fall into tritheism, meaning there's three gods. We do not believe that. Um, or if you emphasize oneness too much, you end up in something called modalism, which is basically, it's all the same person. The person's just wearing different hats. Sometimes he wears the hat of the father, sometimes the son. That's, that's not what we believe either. That's modalism, okay? So what we're trying to do is keep this intention. So we've looked at the three. So now we want to come back to the question, well, okay, given all of that, how is God one? How is he one if this is how the three interact? Um, first, we say this, uh, the Trinity is one being, okay, one being, one nature, one essence. Uh, the, the triune God is one being eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let's think in the creaturely realm real quick. When you have a different person how many, let's suppose I'm talking to two persons, two different persons, or three persons, let's just go there. Let's suppose I'm talking to three different persons. How many beings do I have? Three, right? So if, in the creaturely realm, if I'm talking to three persons, I'm talking to three beings. Or if you were to talk about, if I'm interacting with three beings, how many persons am I acting with? Well, three persons. Or if I'm interacting with one being, how many persons am I interacting with? One. So there's this, in the creaturely realm, there is this tie between being and person that is one-to-one, -one, right? You, you can't, 
we don't have a creature who is one being and three persons, or two, even two persons. We don't have that. We have a one-to-one correlation between being and person. What is unique, absolutely unique, about the Trinity is that one being eternally existing in three persons. Um, so uh, it's not like there's ever a time where the Father just existed or the Son just existed or the Spirit existed. The, the Trinity has always been the Trinity. Always one being and all three persons eternally existing and relating to one another as we have described. So that's what you have to keep in mind. We have one being going, uh, with three persons. And that is utterly unique. This is why analogies ultimately fail, right? Is we just don't have anything else in experience uh, that gets close to that sort of idea, okay? Um, Let's pause there. Any questions about that? God is one in the sense that he is one being. Uh, There is no other God. That's very clear. We walk through passages in the Old Testament, right? There's no other God. There's no other being outside of Yahweh. Um, If you start saying, uh, well, you know, uh, the Son is God, but they're separate. There's a separate being there. Now you're into three gods, which the Old Testament says, uh-uh, no, uh, you've got one, one God. But this one God eternally exists in three persons. Any questions on that? <laughs> Many, right? But uh, any uh, questions on the articulation? Yeah, Lori. Yes. Yes. So briefly, um, let's talk about that for a second. That's a good question. Um, and here's where, um, you know, we talked about the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed of 325 and then the Nicene Constantinople Creed of 381. They're working out the son's deity. But then the question, very, just like you asked, the question goes, well, wait a minute. So how does the son's incarnation work, which ultimately culminates in the Creed of Chalcedon in 451? where they say um, the Son, the person, the one person of the Son, after the incarnation, has two natures. So the Son has always had his divine nature and has o- continually has his divine nature. He never lays his divine nature aside. He can't do that. You can't lay, uh, the Son can't lay aside his divine nature, otherwise he would cease to be God. So he never lays aside his divine nature, um, but he adds to it a human nature. So now you have one person existing in two natures. Not two beings, but two two natures, right? His human nature and his divine nature. Uh, And he operates through both of those. And the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 says stuff like, these two natures, they don't don't mix, they don't, um, uh, they're not separated, uh, it's beautiful language. I wish I had it um, um, right here in front of me. We'll, we'll, I'll try to bring that next week and we can read it. But uh, it's kind of the reverse of the Trinity, right? In the Trinity, you have one nature, one being, three persons. But then when the Son becomes incarnate, he doesn't give up that divine nature, but he adds another one to it. So now you've got one person with two natures, uh, which is the, the sort of inverse of that in, in a sense, right? Uh, but without confusion, without mixture, um, and the son, he does that so that the son is truly man and truly God for the purpose of redemption. Okay? Um, does that help? Yes. 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 There's lots of questions with regard to that. And 
at least we, we would say this, the son died on the cross. His divine nature did not die. God can't die. His human nature died. His body, right? His human body died. Uh, but not, the, not his divine nature in that sense. Um, but here we've got a human who is perfect, who is a perfect lived-in flesh human righteousness, such that he can um, uh, atone for sinful human beings, and that righteousness can be credited. A real human righteousness. It's, it's not so much... Um, sometimes we think, well, because Christ is God, and this is true, right? Um, that divine righteousness is credited to us. But really, the idea in the substitution is Christ's human righteousness. His lived-in-flesh righteousness is credited to us. Um, and so that's, that's some of what you see there. As far as the separation, it's not as if the Trinity was torn apart. Um, but there is, the, the Son is being treated as sin. The Son is being, uh, is being um, uh, you know, treated with the wrath, the eternal weight of wrath that we all deserve, individually and collectively. Um, but there's no, like, severing of the Trinity or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the true Lamb of God. Yes, Julie. Yes. Right. Which is not true. First Timothy two. So go to First Timothy two. So that's the, the, the fallacy of that is twofold. One, that somehow um, Christ ceased, you know, being God, laid aside his divine nature. He never laid aside his divine nature. Like he always had his divine nature. God can't lay aside his divine nature and continue to be God. Right. So that can't happen. Um, but then to your point, um, what some people say is that, okay, so whatever happened in the, the, the incarnation, Christ is a man, fully man, and that is true. He is fully man, but he's still fully God. But then there's this sense that when Christ ascends that um, he's done. All right, I can take off the human, the, the human cloak, so to speak. But that's not what happens. First, uh, first Timothy... Um, one, two. First Timothy two. And I think it's really important because it shows the depth that God went Yeah. Okay. Um, so First Timothy two is written after Christ has ascended. Yes. So Christ has ascended at the right hand of the Father when this is when Paul writes this. Um. I'll start in verse 1. First, then, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, so that's the Father, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, the Father, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Um... So Christ remains a man forever. So taking the human nature in addition to his divine nature, Christ is eternally man now, going forward, right? Not going backward, but going forward into the future. So he is uh, still truly God and truly man sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And that should be immeasurably comforting. Because, like, um, like Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is going to say, 
uh, we have a perfect sympathetic high priest. He can sympathize with our weaknesses as humans, and yet he is the perfect... Uh, he can lay his hand on God, to use Job's language. He can lay his hand on God, and he can lay his hand on man, and he can intercede. He can be the mediator for us, which brings us our great comfort in the gospel. So Christ never ceased, has never ceased to be man after his incarnation. He continues. Now, he's a glorified human being. That is for darn sure, right? We can see that in uh, Revelation, for example. Um, but he is still uh, truly God and truly man, both natures coexisting eternally. Okay. Yeah, Julie. Yeah. Right. So does that change I think when you read Revelation, especially the end, right, you see the picture of the heaven and earth meeting totally, right? And there's this the New Jerusalem, and there's no temple in the city because um, the Lord God is His temple, like the Father's presence is there. But then you see the Lamb, who is the lamp of the Father's glory, and I and then you've also got you've also got God's people reigning with him, right? So uh, the idea is, is yes, in, a, in a, the ultimate sense, the father is over all, but that doesn't mean the son stops reigning. He reigns as a stewardship ruler, which is how Adam was supposed to reign. And then we, as um, uh, sons of the second Adam, right? Uh, the sons of, uh, the adopted sons of God through Jesus, uh, sons and daughters, we are reigning too, as Adam was supposed to do, Right? That doesn't diminish the father's reign. It just means that there's there's a there's a there's a rank and an order to things. So yeah. Mind hurt yet? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean once you understand it's like wow, this is incredible. Uh, and God is just amazing. So uh Lori. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Where, and that's uh, even Ephesians 2, right? He's seated in the heavenly places, and he, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And so that gives us hope looking forward to the future, right? Well, we, will all, we will be resurrected and seated in, um, on earth, right? This is, you know, I keep poking fun at the whole, you know, sit in the cloud and play a harp forever. That's not heaven. It's not heaven. Heaven is on earth. Heaven and earth meet. Heaven comes down to earth. Um, uh, and, and so we are embodied people through the resurrection, glorified, as pa Paul will continue to say in 1 Corinthians 15, the type of body and such that we're going to have, but still human, um, you know, uh, uh, with Christ our elder bro brother. Yeah. Mike. And that's, that's in dispute, right? Theologians are going to dispute. I would argue, yes, that order is eternal, going back and going forward, right? Um, so that the Father is, um, has the initiative, has um, authority, not that that authority diminishes the, the 
godness of the son in any sense. Not that the son's like grumbling and like, oh. no, he's totally delighted to submit to the father. Um, I think the, you know, what we went through with the spirit and the son, um, I think is less clear, actually. It's almost like, uh, so that we know the spirit submits to the father, the son submits to the father. The spirit relationship to the son seems to be like a conduit, right? So the father passes on, um, uh, um, like think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, right? The father designates the spirit to lead Jesus to go out and be tempted in the wilderness, right? But then later we've got the, the father giving uh, to the son the spirit to give to his people, right? So the order is uh, not as clear in my mind. Uh, the initiative still rests with um, the father, so... Yes. Yes, there's no diminishment of glory between the three, right? And that's what we confess, right? Is that um, all three persons, because they're all equally God, um, are equally worthy of worship and praise and adoration. And yet, if we're going to talk about something very practical like um, praying, in general, we're praying to the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit. It's that same order, right? It's always, we, talk, we talked about this at the beginning, from the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. Those are what you, as a rule of thumb, that's what you want to think about. From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, I would... Okay. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Here's my knee-jerk reaction. I think that the, I'm going to guess. I can't think of passages that would directly do that, although I would like to look at Revelation 21 and 22 to see if we get any hints. Uh, but my, my thinking would be, yes, we are internally going to be indwelt by the Spirit, because think of what the Spirit does. The Spirit between the Father and Son facilitates fellowship and communion. Therefore, uh, that's what he's doing even now, even as we have a fallen body that is yet to be redeemed, but that in eternity, right, the, the, the Spirit, even as for the eternal Son, will facilitate that communion with the Father and the Son. That's my knee-jerk response. I'd have to think about, like, do I have some passages that would support, support that? So. But in the presence of the Father. In the presence of the Father. In the presence of all three. Right. And that's the whole thing. It, that's the thing, and you see this in John 17, right, is that the design of the Trinity, not because he needs it, not because the Trinity needs anyone, but out of over, love overflows, joy overflows, right? And so the Father and the Son and Spirit have had a grand old time from all eternity, enjoying one another, loving one another, perfect fellowship and communion and harmony. There is no need whatsoever, but out of the overflow of love and joy, they're like, we're going to create some beings, we're going to create a people to enjoy the same sort of fellowship or at least a, a likeness in fellowship that we have for all eternity. And that is the gospel, right? The Trinity and the love between the members of the Trinity is the foundation of God's redemptive work and the gospel for all eternity. Which is, again, just when we present the gospel, we do want to warn about the Father's wrath and the Son's wrath. I mean, I've been doing that with the woes, right? But... 
it's like the woe and the warning and the judgment is like trying to shake someone by the shoulder and say, wake up. God threatens horrible things if we will not be happy in him. But he wants us to be happy in him. He wants us to be jo- joyful in him uh, because that's what the, the Trinity is and that's why the Trinity has acted as it has in history. Yes, Lael. Um, that brings up the whole discussion of the rapture. So I'm not con- full disclosure, I'm not convinced of a pre-tribulation rapture. So as we go into Matthew 24 and 25, um, just there's always there's a rapture in the sense of First Thessalonians 4, uh, which talks about you know meeting the Lord in the air. I think that's more like meeting him in the air to come back to earth, sort of a, a rapture. Um, but that's for another discussion for another time. Regardless, though, to your point, uh, I, I think uh, we, we, the Spirit is always, my, again, my knee-jerk reaction would be the Spirit is always facilitating, uh, having been redeemed people, the Spirit is always facilitating our fellowship with the triune God. And I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to cease, either at death when our body goes away um, for a time until we're resurrected, or once we're resurrected in the, the, the final state. So, okay, let's pray. <laughs> Uh, Father, you are just incredible. You, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, are incredible, amazing. Um, we love you. We thank you that you have swept us up into your, um, your uh, triune love. And, Lord, that is amazing, and we long for that. We thank you how we get a foretaste of that even now. Uh, by your spirit. And Lord, it's going to be amazing even in just a few minutes as we gather as the temple of God, as a, a collection of living stones and spirit and dwelt people where we're going to experience fellowship with you. Lord, the gathering is so amazing. And Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray that you would prepare our hearts. You prepare our hearts to sing your word. You prepare our hearts to hear your word preached. Uh, you prepare our hearts to pray. You prepare our hearts to fellowship with one another, all to the honor of the Son, and ultimately to your glory, Father, facilitated by the Spirit. We ask these things, we pray for your help, in Jesus' name, amen.